Each morning, I start my day with a tea, my immunity elixir. It contains holy basil, yerba mate, orange pill, rose, chrysanthemum, and lemon balm, the properties of which help to elevate cognitive function. And throughout the day, if I'm feeling bloated, I'll eat some leafy green foods. If I'm feeling sluggish, I'll eat something light, like some salty sardines on crackers with a little bit of mustard. Trust me, I know my way around the food medicine cabinet. But what if food could heal more than just the physical body? What if it could heal our spirit, community, past, and not for nothing, the future? Yeah, I think you know where this is going. So let's get to it. Welcome to season two of the Black Kitchen series, a mini series that shines a light on the brilliant and black innovators changing the face of food as we know it. The black food futurist of today, many of whom will be the history makers of tomorrow. I'm Chef Jade Verrett, AKA Jade of All Jades, and I'll be your guide on this road trip across America as we go in search of the black chefs activists, distillers, farmers, artists, and healers whose stories deserve to be told. I landed in Oakland, enveloped in the stereotypical wet gray haze of the San Francisco Bay. From my airport hotel, I could see the cranes dot the skyline, signaling the city's ongoing development and gentrification. As I drove through the streets to my destination, I was confronted with what I see in most black and brown neighborhoods, including my own, a community that's been neglected by the very systems meant to protect it. The woman I was on my way to meet, however, is helping to rewrite that narrative surrounding her community through food. My name is Kelly Carlisle. I am the founder and executive director of Actinon Verba Youth Urban Farm Project in Oakland, California. Actinon Verba is Latin for actions, not words. And boy, do their actions speak louder than words. As stated on their website, Actinon Verba Youth Urban Farm Project's mission is to elevate life for youth and their families in Oakland and beyond by challenging oppressive dynamics and environments through urban farming and access to the natural environment. ANV strengthens young people's understanding of nutrition, food production, healthy living, and the natural environment, and strengthens their ties to their community. So let's start off with the first question and then let's get into some good conversation. Sure. Can you tell me how you got your start? Sure. In August of 2000, 10, I started hearing all these really disturbing news stories about Oakland being listed by the FBI as the fifth most dangerous city in the U.S., teen prostitution being on the rise. And the one that hit me the hardest, you know, in the list of hard hitting mm-hmm. um, news stories that came out was an almost 40% dropout rate here in the city of Oakland. That's almost half. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And Among black, black students. And black primarily children. black and brown mm-hmm. students. Yeah. Um, and also, I had recently learned that food was grown. And so these news stories came out and my mother and I were drinking wine, folding clothes, talking <laughs> All of a sudden, I decided to do both things. Like, I thought that growing food was completely magical and, like, 
who knew? Like, you don't need a special degree to do this. You don't have to, like, be, a, be like, super duper brilliant to grow food. And it's really satisfying. It's mm-hmm. really uplifting to know that, like, at the end of a day, you've done these things. And at the end of a season, you have all this to give. So when Kelly says she had just learned that food was grown, she really does mean that she had literally just put two and two together that food was grown. So let's get into that, because I was going to ask you if you had a background at all in farming, but clearly not. No. I happened by a lemon tree that had a lemon on it, and I had never seen that before and thought it was, you know, be in Oakland that somebody had vandalized the little tree. <laughs> How? So, How, exactly. How, Kelly? And that's what I said. I was like, <laughs> this vandalism has gotten out of control. <laughs> now growing fruit on trees now. Now. They're, now they're just sticking fruit on trees. <laughs> You thought they were hanging it like sneakers? Like like, like toilet paper, you know what I mean? Just, just sticking fruit And you trees. discovered this as an adult. Yes. Don't feel shame. <laughs> don't feel ashamed. The first time I picked an apple, I was like 32 years old. So don't, exactly. don't feel exactly. bad. <laughs> don't feel you. bad. So you walked by, you saw this tree that you thought was vandalism, yes. but wasn't. And so I tried to yank the, the lemon off the tree mm-hmm. and it was on there. And I was like, damn it. And I like got down and mm-hmm. like tried to actually detach it. I was like, it's really attached. And so I looked at my snappy little three-year-old and I was like, I think this is a lemon tree. (laughs) So I got the tree, I put it in the thing. And when I got to the checkout counter, the cashier was like, do you need any uh, soil for that? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, a pot or anything? And Mm -hmm. I was like, soil, pot. Yes, Hmm. maybe. Right. And then I saw how much the pots were. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, garbage can. Yeah. And so you came up with the garbage can idea on your own mm-hmm. just because you didn't want to purchase the pots. It was too much. Single I was, and, and unemployed. Yeah. You know. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I don't know if this is nationwide, but at least here in California, you can buy plant starts and seeds and saplings mm-hmm. with EBT. That's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. That's the way that it, EBT needs to be used, is it not? Okay, so you learned how to grow in the garbage can. Mm-hmm. How? Keep telling me the story of how yeah. you got into this. <laughs> well, I basically bought the tree. Mm-hmm. I bought the garbage can. The place that I bought it had like a wall of um, bags from the soil that you could buy. Mm -hmm. And if you knew what you were doing, you could point to the one, right? Mm -hmm. Me, it's like wine, right? Like Mm -hmm. as long as it gets me there. So I I looked at the the wall of names of compost and soils Mm -hmm. and I was like, black gold. I'm black. It's black. Let's go. So I grabbed the black gold. It turns out it was the most expensive kind, Mm -hmm. mostly used for growing weed, but whatever. (laughs) So it grew fine lemons. (laughs) I brought it home, dumped it in, you know, and watered it three times a day and like hoped that it would give me one more lemon. Like, Mm -hmm. is this really a thing? Mm -hmm. And it gave me two more lemons and it was over. Like, I need to know, what else can I grow, right? And so I got really, really excited. And as I tell the kids that are in our program, anything that you like about me, anything that you like about this program, this organization Mm -hmm. came from reading. And I bought all the books. I bought um, You Grow Girl was my first book. (laughs) It was like The Complete Idiot's Guide to Backyard Gardening or Container Gardening. I bought all those books and went to the library and got all of them and read them cover to cover. And I was like, I think I can do this. Did you have a background in in nonprofit or social work? Okay, so this is all off of reading Mm -hmm. and just a desire. All right, let's keep going. Yeah, so going back to the lemon tree, Mm -hmm. it was once it gave me two more giant lemons, I was in love. I was like, this 
this dog. <laughs> and so I went back to the exact same place, mm-hmm. bought a whole bunch more garbage cans, <laughs> more black gold. Like mm-hmm. most of my money went to the soil. Mm-hmm. And they had, you know, like the little nursery part out. And so I was like, I eat tomatoes. I eat onions. I eat whatever, right? I bought all of that stuff and brought it back and planted it in the garbage cans. And I, I named my back patio the Garden of Eaton. E-A-T-I-N. Oh, oh, that's cute. (laughs) So how did you get to actually selling your produce and growing that much to be able to to do what you're doing? So it took a long time. My mother helped me think through the nonprofit structure, um, who we were going to serve, where we were going to do this. And in retrospect, from the time that I approached the city of Oakland until we actually got access to this land here at Tassafaranga Park mm-hmm. was almost a, one year to the day. And at the time, it felt like it took forever. Right. And, but in retrospect, it's like, man, that happened so fast. A year. I, mm-hmm. A year from when you grew your first lemon tree. From, no, a year from when I first thought. When you first thought. Of acting on Verba and starting a nonprofit. When you were reading the articles. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. What a quick trajectory. Yeah. And speaking of articles, like I probably would have just like the idea would have blooped and went out of my head mm-hmm. and I would have forgotten about it, except that I read the comments on the kindergarten to college program. And folks were just like, you know, I wish I would stop telling little Terrell that he needs to go to college. The world only needs so many nuclear physicists, but we'll always need janitors. And you don't need a college degree for that. The kindergarten to college program she's referring to was started in 2011 by Gavin Newsom, who was mayor of San Francisco at the time. The idea was that every kid entering public school would get a $50 deposit of public funds to put into an interest-bearing savings account, putting students on a path to college from their first day of school. Sounds like a no-brainer, right? Well... And, you know, people were mad that Gavin Newsom was using their taxpayer money to, you know, help kids. these children with higher education. Exactly. The nerve. The nerve. Right. Stealing education. And according to a University of Wisconsin study, kids are six times more likely to attend college if there is an account dedicated to their education. And then... They're even more likely to go if their families and the kids themselves are able to contribute to it because they're literally investing in their future. Folks were really hateful and and rude about it. And having served in the military, I was like, this is not what I this is not what I fought for. Mm-hmm. I didn't fight for some people to have an opportunity, for some people to to have a leg up, to be able to realize their full potential. I served for all Americans and especially for the ones that look like me, you know? And it it just really, it triggered something in me that was like, we can't keep moving forward as a country, as a society, if we're like, okay with leaving some kids behind. And so I wanted kids to be able to be able to invest in themselves by, you know, farming and learning Mm -hmm. the, the value of farming and whatnot. And I wanted parents to know that their kids were well taken care of. I wanted parents to know like, You don't have to pay half of your earnings in order to send your child somewhere where they're going to be safe, going to have delicious food, they're going to have a great time Mm -hmm. and learn things. So where did the intersection come where you said, I'm going to use food 
along with these things that I feel passionately about, about my community and about these children and bring those together. Where And you started with the support of your mother as well. So how did that come to fruition? It was that night. It was that, it was that night. night with the laundry and the wine mm-hmm. that it was like, mom, what if there was a nonprofit? What if there was a place where kids could come, learn how to farm, you know, get as excited about tomatoes as I do? And also, you know, be putting money away for college. Mm -hmm. And my mother's face just lit up. She's like, that's a great idea. I'm I'm in. I'm in. Let me help you. Yes. I love that. It was so dope. That's the support of your mother. mm -hmm. And you know what? If we're being completely honest, sometimes us as a community, when we hear ideas that are not uh, familiar to us, we get a little averse to them, do we not? Yeah. So I love that you had that immediate support behind you. I think that's a beautiful thing. And so outside of the location across the way. We have three farms in the city of Oakland that are run by youth age five to now 25. The kids plan, plant, harvest, and sell the produce that we grow. Mm -hmm. And 100% of the profits are placed into individual savings accounts for them that can only be used for education purposes. And so our three farms are ANV Farm at Tassafarango, which we are across the street from now. We have a production farm in West Oakland, and we have a teaching garden and demonstration garden at the A Stadium. Okay, um, talk to us a little bit about the demonstration garden. What is sure. what is that? You are like being super humble about these really big things you're doing. Well, wait till I tell you the Barack Obama I was good, story. Because I was about yeah, to ask I know. You. I know. <laughs> I'll I'll get there. Okay, (laughs) let's go. When I talk to my staff about like why we're doing certain things, Mm -hmm. it's because we never know what's going to lead to the next opportunity, the next blessing, the next thing that we can do. I did a lot of farm tours and field trips here before I had a staff. It just so happened that some student, grad student that came to visit the farm ended up interning uh, with the Oakland A's owner. And they approached us and said, you know, we'd like you to design and maintain this garden. And so my fantastic deputy director, Aaron De La Cerda, designed the farm and we have a demonstration farm there. Wow. Mm -hmm. And you have some sister farmers that you work with as well, do you not? Tell me a little about them. Yeah, it's been huge. Like I want to acknowledge and honor the lives lost, the hurt and the pain of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I want to also acknowledge that a lot of things happened, a lot of change happened during that time, during this time. So we were approached by another organization to absorb their largest program, the Beatbox CSA. And we knew that we couldn't from our quarter acre farm, our eighth of an acre farm, and the demonstration guard, that we wouldn't be able to serve everybody that needed food at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So when we absorbed that program, we also brought our sister farmers. And so we work with farmers of color in the Central Coast and Central Valley, primarily women farmers. And we are so proud to be in partnership with them and in sistership with them because they're doing wonderful work. And we mm-hmm made it our policy, Act on Verbus policy, is to make sure that the farmers are the price makers and we're the price takers. Like they're doing the hard work. They're out there, you know, rain or shine, doing actual farm work. And so we honor that by paying what they ask. Talk a little bit more about the CSA actually now too, because tell me a little bit more about what you all are doing with the CSA. Sure. 
So before the pandemic, we were able to serve about 10 families and individuals at a time from our three farms. Mm-hmm. Once we absorbed the Beatbox CSA program and started working with our sister farmers, mm-hmm we blew up. Like we were serving 300 families and individuals by at the middle of the pandemic. And it's been a really huge learning opportunity for not only the young people that will, um, during the out-of-school times, help with the CSA, the packing and the ordering and mm-hmm. so on, but also for us to know our community better. So your CSA packets are going out to this community as to well. To this community as That's well as more affluent communities, right? So we're constantly having conversations around what should be ordered. Like, mm-hmm. you know, some folks really know what to do with lemongrass and some people <laughs> really don't, you know, and same thing with sunchokes mm-hmm. and, and all these things. So we keep trying to both educate, expand the knowledge of what's, you know, what's edible, what's around, whatever. Mm-hmm and making sure that we have culturally relevant foods for folks, things that folks feel good about grabbing and and eating. So you're providing education for the things that they don't know as well. We have recipes. We have a community-run cookbook. We have, yeah. What is this doing for the families now in the community, now that you've been able to take this program, implement this? What is that doing for their spirits, for the community? When I tell you that we have moms and grandmoms that are just like overjoyed, overwhelmed with joy that their babies have a place to be for 11 and a half hours a day during all out of school breaks, right? So from eight to, I think we're doing seven to nine weeks this summer. The spring break is one week. We do a week during fall break. We do a week during winter break. Like just making sure that kids are always engaged in something positive and that families have a break. Mm -hmm. We are the only accredited camp in Oakland, from and in Oakland. And we have just really built our reputation with families to know that we're here for your children. We're here for you, your children, to make sure that we can envision a better world, that we don't have to continue to operate under this deficit feeling, this feeling that, you know, we don't deserve better. That is the number one goal out of We're not necessarily trying to make new farmers. We're not necessarily trying to create new vegans. We are, (laughs) we are trying to instill in young people that your voice matters, what you care about matters, what you want to see, we want to see as well. You've created a giant ecosystem. Do you realize that? It's an ecosystem that continues to feed. It's feeding our future, it's feeding our children, and it's also providing opportunities for other families that need it. And that's such a large and beautiful thing. Do you realize that? I mean, I try to remember that the work isn't... It's not done. It's not done, and mm-hmm. it's not just a hard day, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's it's wins and losses throughout the week and throughout the year. So, yeah, I... I sometimes remember how our humble beginnings of a budget of $150,000 and me apologizing to funders. Once we get the redwood, it'll be, it'll go down. I promise. (laughs) I promise. We just need 22 raised beds with redwood only. And then all you have to do is pay me just a little bit, you know? And now now we're like 200 times that. so. So what are you excited about for the future of this? As you've seen this all start from a seed and provide all of this, what are you excited for for the future? 
there's no limit to the opportunities that just farming gives our organization and our community, right? I'm excited about all the pieces that are now coming together from 15 kids three times a week from 10 to 2 to 250 kids a day for eight weeks to going camping and having grandmas and aunties. So continuing that work. As our kids got older, we keep having to like come up with new programs to keep them engaged. Mm -hmm. So now we have our No Limit Leadership Program that happens during the school year. Right Right now they're working on, it's called Resolute Cafe. Mm -hmm. It's a cooperatively owned mobile uh, coffee stand that purchases exclusively from, fingers crossed, (laughs) from um, BIPOC vendors. So we'll be offering House Kombucha, BIPOC-owned, and um, Black and Bold Coffee whenever we have Oh, our... I love Black and Bold. Mm-hmm. Okay, come on with it. <laughs> yes. Whenever we have our big grand opening. So the cart just got here. They're working to build it. It's very cool. I'm excited. The seeds. Mm-hmm. The seeds you've planted. <laughs> the seeds, Kelly. Okay, one more before we get into the Obama story. <laughs> so somebody like myself who does not live in the Oakland area, but is listening to this elsewhere and wants to contribute to what you're doing, how would I be able to do that? So our campaign this year is support ANV in 2023. Our hashtag is breathe in a new world. We know that there's something better on the horizon and we want everyone to be a part of making that happen. So you and folks like you can go to our website. It's a as an Apple, N as a Nancy, V as in Victor, farm, F-A-R-M dot O-R-G. And please donate as generously as you can. The need has only grown here for food and safe places, safe, supportive places for young people to be. So every little bit helps and every donation is truly appreciated by ANV and the communities that we serve. I love that, Kelly. It's really awesome. It could have just been the gray weather, or maybe I was getting a little bit homesick. But heading into this interview, I wasn't too inspired, I won't lie. But after my afternoon with Kelly, the world got a whole lot more hopeful. Inspired by the love she has for her community, Kelly's been able to plant the seeds of a big, beautiful, bright future for thousands of young people and their families. She's operating at a soul healing level. Another person working with food to heal on the soul and community level that I wanted to talk with was further down the coast. So I went chasing some literal sunshine in SoCal, where I met up with a chef slash artist slash black food futurist. I'm sitting here with Chef Nia Lee in downtown Los Angeles. Hi, Nia. Hi. Great to be here with you, Jade. I'm glad to be inside because the one day out of the year decided to rain is today. So uh, I, It never rains in Southern California. <laughs> they rains. lied. <laughs> they, they lied. <laughs> Somebody lied. So Tony, Tony, Tony is who it was. <laughs> um, well, let's get into it. So you have a supper club, and yes. I'm going to let you introduce the name and also give us background on where that comes from. For sure. So I founded Stormy Supper Club. I guess it's been about three or four years now. And Stormy Supper Club is a black and brown, queer-centered supper club. We actually do wine tastings and suppers. 
And we offer quarterly events for queer folks here in Los Angeles. And why specifically queer people? You know, I think that there is a lot of expansiveness and potential for agency and queerness. Mm -hmm. You know, the agency, being able to name yourself, being able to claim yourself, being able to build your own table. My primary medium is food. And so I see a true connection between food as medium and then queerness and agency Mm -hmm. and and being able to tie those things together. So that's the first reason. And then secondly, we need community. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. really difficult to find queer community, black queer community specifically in, get, yep. in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. No shade to WeHo, but <laughs> when I, it is what it is. It yeah. is what it is. When I go to WeHo, I don't see lots of folks who look like me. You know, I um, I went to an opening for a new lesbian bar a few weeks ago, and I was the only black person in there, and it just reaffirmed how important it is to be in community with people who are like you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, you know, I thought for a long time that I was the only person mm-hmm. who was hungry for this community. And, you know, when I had my first supper club, so many people showed up and I realized that it wasn't just me and decided to keep doing it. Okay, so let's get into that. So yeah. first I want to talk about the name because I think yeah. the basis of what you call your supper club yeah. is very important. So yes. let's talk about it. It's called the... Stormy Supper Club. All right. So it's named after Stormy Delavier. She is an amazing activist, artist, drag king, general badass who really came into prominence during the Harlem Renaissance. Mm. So she participated in this traveling drag show called the Jewel Box Review. Mm. They traveled all throughout the country and she was just killing it, (laughs) like in this amazing tuxedo and suit. And then after the Jewel Box Review, she moved back to New York City and became a prominent activist and protector of up and coming queer folks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of queer history has been lost over time, but accounts say that she was the person who threw the first punch at Stonewall. So yeah, her legacy is extremely important Mm -hmm. and we don't talk enough about what she did. You know, I think about my ancestors and, you know, you can't claim your family. You can't choose your family, but you can choose your ancestors. And I see her as one of my ancestors. And I want to make sure that we're keeping her name and the zeitgeist and keeping her name in all of our mouths because she's so important. So at every Stormy Supper Club, we have a little a little seat at the table for her. Yes, come on, a little, altar. A little altar for her because we couldn't do this work without her. And ultimately, this work is continuing her legacy. Absolutely. Let's talk about creating that safe space where a safe space is needed, especially for us as Black women, especially going even further as queer Black women. So let's talk a little bit about how you assess who comes to the dinner parties, who is in this community, who gets to partake? Yeah, that's a really great question. And Thankfully, I, I haven't had any anyone who's like a cis white male show up. Well, they got a, a hundred other spaces, so I hope not. I'm like, there's a donate button. Mm-hmm. I would love for you to donate. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, this club is for Black queer women, femmes, gender expansive folks. And that is because it is so difficult to find 
us in Los Angeles. Just like you're saying, there are a hundred bars, a hundred clubs where you can go and be in mixed company. So it's really important to have these concentrated spaces for connection and safety and expansion Mm -hmm. and community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did you come into creating this community? Because you're not originally from this area, correct? I'm not. Okay. I'm actually from the East Coast. Okay. I'm an so, East Coast oh, wow. girl. So you came far. I did. <laughs> I came far. I moved here and previously I was on the East Coast, Boston and New York specifically. Mm-hmm. And I felt like when I was in New York, especially, I'd be on the train and just kind of stumble mm-hmm. into queer community, quite Very frankly. Cool culture. Yeah, like actually be on the train and be like, oh, hey, you, you. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I moved to Los Angeles, I was like, where are we at? Like, I don't, are we here? Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I can't find, I can't find us. Mm-hmm. I can't find me here. So let me try to pull something together. Mm-hmm. So. I literally built a table in my side yard with some wood from Home Depot on clearance. Okay, um, hold on. <laughs> Are you a carpenter? You know, I went to a hippie. Do you sc- have the Jesus gene? <laughs> I'm actually Jesus. Uh, Jesus is a black woman um, from Boston. Uh, but <laughs> so uh, I, I went to a hippie school when I was little, okay. little. I don't think I should have been playing with power tools. And uh, Clearly you should have. <laughs> I know how to build stuff. I've actually built two tables for Stormy Supper Club now, yeah. That's amazing. Um, so I built this table and I told a few friends that I did that I didn't know that I was mm-hmm. just gonna have like a brunch. I made some quiches. I made uh, my famous butter cake, bought some bottles of wine and was like, you know what? Uh, if nobody comes, I will have breakfast for the week mm-hmm. and wine for the day. So- <laughs> Come on, day. <laughs> So it is what it is. And then the hour rolled around and my house was packed. Mm -hmm. It was packed. People on the floor, people on my porch, people in my yard, people that I didn't even know. Mm -hmm. Oh. Yeah. How'd that that feel? Having all. It was actually really beautiful and Mm -hmm. really affirming to know that I was not alone Mm -hmm. um, in this city. And I asked people that day, I was like, do you want me to keep doing this? Mm -hmm. And they're like, duh. Like, we don't have this anywhere else. Right, right, right. And I was like, should I open it to everyone? They're like, no, what are you talking about? So, yeah, from that day forward, I knew that folks were as hungry and excited as I was, and I just kept at it. Did you start channeling your ancestors a little bit more with the intentionality once you realized that this community was feeding people in a way that they needed socially. So channeling that into your food. Yeah, 100%. So I consider myself to be a student of Verdame Smart Grosvenor. Okay, hold on now, because that's a name. (laughs) (laughs) That's a name. That's a name. I want you to say it slower, and I want you to let the people know who Verdame is. Yes, Verdame Smart Grosvenor. Verdame Smart (laughs) Grosvenor. Say say that three times. Say that three times real quick. Verdame Smart Grosvenor. Um, She is a culinary griot. She is a researcher, a chef. She's an ancestor now, um, but I see ancestors as present. And she coined the term vibration cooking. Okay. Yeah. And vibration cooking is basically how we cook, Mm -hmm. right? It's being inspired by our ancestral guidance. It's being inspired by the land, by the community that we're cooking for. It's more than just cooking with intention, it's cooking with energetic intention. Mm. So in the same way that we don't eat for everybody's kitchen, (laughs) because of a lot of different reasons, (laughs) 
uh, mostly people's cats walking on the counters and whatnot, but I don't eat from everybody's kitchen because of their energy as well. I believe that there is a true intentional or unintentional energy transference in the food that you are making. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that what I'm putting in my body is aligning with what I'm vibrating at. So that's basically, yeah, vibration cooking. It's how we cook. It's, it's cooking with feel. It's cooking with ancestral guidance. It's cooking with energetic intentionality. Mm-hmm. And it's in all of us, you know? Yeah. yeah, it's like leaning away from recipe and leaning more into feel. So how do you feel that, because um, you do your healing clearly through your food. Yeah. So how do you feel like that helps people to see the world? You know, I see the world through food. Mm-hmm. It is my love language. It is my everything. And I think that food is a really beautiful looking glass into Mm -hmm. someone's lineage, into someone's present, into Mm -hmm. someone's future, into someone's past. Mm -hmm. And it is also a really good medium for building community Mm -hmm. because there's nothing more beautiful than sharing a plate with people that you love or will grow to love. Talk about that. Talk about that. And when you talked about putting energy in food, which we can do in a very negative way, right? Yeah. You are putting energy in your food to heal not only a community or create a community Mm -hmm. that otherwise may have been overlooked, but us as a society. How do we expand that out? How do we continue that growth and that healing through our food as a community, as a community of chefs? How do you think we do that? That's a great question. So... I actually coined the term Black Food Futurism, and it's the umbrella under which all of my work exists. Mm -hmm. And Black Food Futurism is the convergence of Black American traditional foodways, art practices, and archival histories to think about new ways to build community and ultimately heal community. So, you know, I have Stormy Supper Club, which is intentionally centering like black and brown queer folks. Mm -hmm. And then I have these other experimental sort of looking glass dinners that are open to everybody. Mm. Um, And that is because I want to be able to, of course, reach my people, but Mm -hmm. then I also want to use food to do what you just said. I want to use food to touch the world. Mm -hmm. And I want to use food to hopefully heal the world. What we're putting in our bodies right now is so... um, What's the right word? Sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's uh it goes with the convenience of the society that we live in, exactly. right? But like which yeah. lacks intentionality. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Even when you go to some of these, you know, five star restaurants and such, I like to sit right next to the kitchen mm-hmm. because I like to see how the chefs are are uh-huh. speaking to each other mm-hmm. how i like to see how the wait staff is being treated because all of that impacts the way that food tastes mm. and the way that food impacts us it impacts conversation it impacts everything mm-hmm. yeah so you bring that same intentionality into the stormy supper club i do and what else are you doing with outside of the stormy supper club to continue to build that community Like I said, I'm really interested in all of the ways that food can be used as medium. I see myself as a chef, but I really see myself as like a culinary artist Mm -hmm. that's using food the same way a painter would use paint. I see Stormy Supper Club as an active and interactive performance art piece. Mm -hmm. I think any time that Black people are together, especially Black queer people come together with intention, it's disruptive Mm -hmm. and great art is disruptive. So I see that work as a living, breathing performance art installation. And similarly, my other food happenings, Mm -hmm. as I would call them, 
are met with the same sort of intentionality. So one that I did, I did a a vegan inspired South Carolinian seafood dinner. So okay, um, wait, that's so many things that and some don't go together. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> what, how did you do that? Yeah, yeah. So my roots are actually from South Carolina. Mine too. Oh my gosh. What? We might be related. I don't know. We might. <laughs> I already <laughs> talked to another chef on this tour and we had the same shape head. And I'm looking at you. I and mean, I'm like, we have very similar you know, faces. We got these little cheeks. Yes, we You know, the neck to head yes, ratio yes. is short. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, like actually, we might <laughs> no, actually, um, yeah. So I, I started to think about you know what my people were eating traditionally, mm-hmm. and then was also really inspired by what's happening in the oceans, the mm-hmm. overfishing, the constant uh, spills, constant that we're seeing spills, all over the place. correct, mm-hmm. yeah. And I was like, what would it look like to imagine a vegan? future for seafood. Mm-hmm. So I did, of course, like scallops made out of trumpet mushrooms hey. over liquid nitrogen. And it was like super A little cool. nori Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I did, um, what else was it cool? I did crab cakes made out of hearts of palm. Oh. Um, yeah, that oh, was the consistency exactly. I can imagine. Nice. Yeah, with black garlic um, and I'm also so nori. Fascinated. What else? Keep talking yeah. to me. <laughs> yes. And so each dish was tied to a specific aspect of my lineage or my people from South Carolina. So with every course, I would come out and give a story mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Where, what inspired this dish, who inspired this dish, mm-hmm. and what we should be feeling when we're eating this dish, what each dish was infused with. So. Wow. Yeah. So I would argue that you you called yourself a food artist. Yeah. But you are a food healer, are you not? Oh, thank you. With the intentionality that you put behind every single thing that you're doing, behind every event that you're doing yeah. from the Stormy Supper Club down yeah. to the vegan seafood South Carolina extravaganza. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. I love the intentionality that you put in your food and it seems like your main focus It's not just to channel and honor those who came before, but to continue that healing through food. Correct, yeah. I love that, Nia. You didn't think I forgot to write that postcard for you, right? Dear family, friend, neighbor, I met two incredible women in California. They're both harnessing the power of food to build sites of meaningful community, but in very different ways. Kelly's doing something with the youth of Acta Non Verba that the whole world's got to know about. Rewriting the narrative around her community in a way that puts their future back into their own hands. Literally. And same with Chef Nia and what she's doing with Stormy Supper Club. She's using the magnetism of the table she built and the food she prepares with such clear intention to create a community among Black queer women, femmes, and gender-expansive folks, where community did not exist before. That's revolutionary. Nia calls herself a Black food futurist, a beautiful term that she coined herself. And I think it applies to both of these women and their life missions. In episode one, I learned that innovation wasn't necessarily a big tech advancement. And what I've continued to learn especially in these conversations, is that innovation can happen in the spirit and soul too. And that the love one has for their community can be a supernatural, powerful force. Anywho, 
California, you were beautiful for the two hours it did not rain. But I'm headed home to Brooklyn now to prepare for my interview with season one's host and nemesis, Adrian Miller, the soul food scholar. That's it for me for now. Peace and blessings. XOXO. Jade of all jades. Oh, and P.S. Do yourself a favor and listen to this week's bonus episode where Kelly tells her hilarious Obama story. Thank you to Kelly Carlisle of Acta Nonverba and Chef Nia Lee for sharing your powerful stories. And thank you to Locke and his two chunky cats for lending us your home for the day. To find out more about their work, please check out our show notes. Season two of the Black Kitchen series, Innovators, was created by Heinz and Wyden and Kennedy and produced by the Meta Creative Co. Follow us at HeinzBKI on Instagram. And while you're at it, please take a minute to rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think. More reviews help more people find us. Subscribe to the Black Kitchen series podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the Jade of All Jades. Thanks for listening. See you in the next episode. Bye.